Welcome to another episode of the Cool Tools Show and Tell. Our special guest this week is Will Walker. Hey, Will, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Um, yeah. So my name is Will Walker. Um, I've had a really strange career. I started out getting a degree in painting and have gone through the process of being a maker. Uh, I've co-founded a business making exotic ceramics. I've made ceramics myself uh, and then gradually moved into product design. Uh, I've designed a sneaker <laughs> and uh, also uh, worked on how we interact with computers. And so today I'd say I work on human computer interfaces, um, primarily how we talk to computers with our voice. And what are all the little signals that we give computers that they don't understand yet. Cool. That's going to become very important because, as you know, um, we've entered into the period of having a conversational user interface to the AIs instead of graphical user interfaces. So that that conversation is going to become more and more important. So I'm so glad you're working on it. Yeah, I think it's it's endemic or it's it's kind of this interesting fact that even if you could you know, perfectly talk to these large language models or these AIs, they wouldn't understand 60 to 70% of what you actually mean because right. they don't understand where you're looking. They don't understand your tone of voice. They don't understand your emotion. And so until that, those problems get solved, until we really understand that, we, we really truly aren't talking to our computers yet. Yeah. But we will be, will be, of course, but I'm so glad you're working on the case. Yeah. So, um, Will, what's um, one of your favorite tools you'd like to share with us? Oh, my gosh. So many. Um, I think the first one is a class of tools, and it, it dates back to um, the first startup I was ever a part of. It's called a supercritical dryer. And a supercritical dryer is just a high-pressure vessel that allows you to heat up different materials and pressurize them. And in particular, with supercritical drying, you're heating up liquid carbon dioxide. So why would you want to do that? Um, the reason is because it allows you to make a class of material called an aerogel. And aerogels are the lightest solid ceramic materials you can possibly make. They're also really cool because they look like pieces of the sky. It's like you're holding a little tiny piece of the sky in your hand. So I'd encourage anyone who hasn't seen an aerogel or touched an aerogel to Google one. They've been you know, commercially available since the early 2010s. Before that, you had to kind of get them from NASA or some other large lab. And I got involved with them as an artist because I was interested in using these materials that look like the sky. So let's go back to so, so so just a second. You yeah. said if anyone hasn't, I have not touched one. Mm -hmm. um, where would I go to get one? Oh, uh, well, so to learn about them, you can go to a website called Aerogel. No, not to learn about them. No, no, to hold one. To, oh, to hold one. Um, so there's there's a company that actually sells them, um, Aerogel Technologies. Uh -huh. uh, and that was a company I helped to get off the ground. Okay. And, um, they're still selling them today. They're like, they sell little pieces that you can kind of explore and you can pick up and they have all different kinds of classes of them. Um, some of them and, are- And, and, yeah. and um, besides using it for art, are there any practical reasons? Would, would someone 
what would I or someone else buy one for in terms of its utility? Oh, well, they're the best insulators that are that are solid. So you okay. can actually um, use them in a very tiny space to isolate a very big temperature differential. So okay. you want something really hot next to something really cold. Right. And one of the, the places that this really shines is, is when you have an aerogel made out of glass or silica, because it can handle a really high temperature, like a direct flame. And you can put that against something that you don't want to burn. Okay. So let's go back to the super critical dryer. Um, so this is a tool that you're suggesting. Um, <laughs> can you describe this tool? Like how big is it? Um, what does it look like? What does it do? Yeah, this is, um, it's kind of funny because it, it's a, a variable size and shape. Um, and the larger they get, like any pressure vessel, the cost just goes up enormously. Um, and even small ones are expensive because they have to be able to hold a thousand pounds per square inch of pressure. So there's a lot of steel and you need a certified you know, pressure vessel that yeah. holds that pressure in. Okay, so let's let's say that I, I have one. Mm -hmm. Besides making some aerogels, is there anything? What else could I do with it? Yeah, so you could actually decaffeinate coffee with it, <laughs> or mm -hmm. you could dry clean your clothes when you when you send your clothes off to be green dry clean. They actually are using a supercritical drying process to to clean off, and it's essentially a solvent that um, washes away anything that's an impurity. Right, but that sounds pretty big if i can put my clothes in it yeah that's um, going to be a, that's going to be very like large what, I, what, what could you do with a small one? Oh well so um you could take like a small piece of uh like a gel like a gelatin and um you know you cast some jello and you would put it into the supercritical dryer and then you add liquid co2 and you heat up the liquid co2 until it's actually not even a gas or a liquid it's a supercritical fluid and at that point you can slowly let the pressure off and the, the CO2 will come out and whatever liquid was in your gel is disappears. It, it, it's evaporated with the mm. CO2. And so what that leaves you with is essentially the skeleton of the gel. And so you're left with this material that's, that's very airy and porous mm. and has these very, very small pores um, and is unlike anything else that, that you could create. Um, so it's, it's a very specialized tool and not, you know, I wanted to go for something that was really uh, unique and probably hadn't been recommended on this. this sure. Uh, well, it definitely has not been recommended. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, I imagine maybe some of the molecular gastronomy, kind of a high-end chefs would kind of play around with this kind of stuff. Exactly. You know, one of the first things we did when we were we were testing out a super critical dryer that we built was to dry jello and then to taste it. And it, it kind of had this, like, popcorn slash super dry it just like stuck to your tongue because it was so dry and had such tiny pores that just wanted to soak up all the liquid in your mouth so it actually it had this like suctiony feeling to it um and then as it goes it, it sort of collapses the way that a a popcorn or like a a chip might collapse in your mouth but like a thousand times drier and lighter wow 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 um and and so how is it how is the sort of result different from freeze drying? Mm. You mentioned liquid, solid CO2, which is very, very cold. 
So mm -hmm. is there a difference between freeze drying and supercritical drying? Sure. So the, the, you know, I'm not as familiar with freeze drying, but supercritical drying is unique because it helps you get liquids that might, might cause capillary pressure. When, when a liquid wants to leave a pore of a material, it exerts a force as it's being, as it's exiting. And that tends to collapse the material. So if you were to take jello in your fridge and just leave it there, you're going to notice that as time goes on, it sort of turns into this shrunken little like dried out husk. And that's because as the water is evaporating out, it's, it's leaving, it's, it's collapsing or, or uh, causing the pores inside the jello to collapse. And so if you're able to uh, use a liquid to take it out, and in particular, a supercritical liquid, the supercritical fluid has essentially no surface, uh, surface tension. And so it doesn't exert that same force. And so your material essentially stays fully inflated as the liquid. Yeah. And, and it's as you remove the material and lower the pressure, the gas is still inside the pores. So right, the right. idea is that you're going from a fluid to a gas in a very smooth and, and um, gentle process, right. even though the temperature is high and the pressure is very high. So we get these... Um freeze-dried strawberries from Trader Joe's for our granddaughter that would seem to retain much of their shape. And they have this aspect where they're kind of like everything, but they're just without the water. Mm -hmm. And they have a kind of a crunchy, odd texture and yeah. incredibly intense flavor. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, I think the difference might be is that the strawberry that you 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 get from a freeze dryer is probably like 60 or or 50% of the volume of the original strawberry where is it an aerogel would be like 90 to 95% of the volume and that makes a big difference in terms of the porosity and the ability for a material to really insulate okay. so um, these are like subtle things but they're sort of hardcore material science uh, questions and they sort of unlock these magical properties uh about materials that that you know you don't you can't really get any other way so going back then to the supercritical um drying tool mm -hmm. uh, do you have a recommendation of one and how much do they cost oh well they're they're expensive um you know they're they're kind of in this class of if you have to ask it's it's too much mostly they're bought by um, manufacturing facilities, even the, the, um, the you know, uh, uh, computer chip industry uses them a lot to clean things very carefully. Um, but there's actually a website, an open source website called aerogel.org that actually has a description of how to make your own supercritical dryer from scratch. And really what you need are some high pressure plumbing fixtures, right. which you know, can run in the like low thousands of dollars. It kind of depends on the size you're going for. But essentially you're looking at like a tube with like a boltable, uh, you know, a couple of holes in it and a boltable yeah. exterior caps. Okay, so if you can make it do it yourself on your own, why are they so expensive? <laughs> because of the need. So when you do it yourself on your own, you know, you're you're probably like, ordering some gas from like a uh from like a plumbing supplier or or even from uh like a, a company that would supply restaurants and the auto you know the the professional ones they're automated so they have a computer control system because you really you know anything that's 
that involves this kind of pressure, you have to babysit these things and you have to be there and you have to construct, you know, a safe enclosure around it. Um, and that is all outlined on the website. So, you know, you, you need to follow a lot of safety precautions. It's really, this is a like big time grown up in a workshop, you know, type of activity, but um, it's really quite exciting and, and it's kind of magical. You can like be an alchemist who creates a completely new form of matter. Um, so I think it's just kind of a, this is more of a, like I said, you know, on the, on the like spectrum of like very odd tools. Okay. Um, well, it, it sounds like this is kind of one of the kinds of tools that you may not actually ever use, but it's good that you know that they exist because wow. they might at some point for somebody to open up a possibility that they didn't even know was possible. And that's what this tool is about. Yeah. And I, I think for me, the tool was a pathway. So some tools you buy because they give you this general purpose utility. And this was like a pathway as an artist where I wanted the lightest solid material. Yeah. And so I, I was like, I'll do anything to get it. And eventually that led me to the tool. So okay. sometimes, you know, on your path, you have an end goal in mind and then the tool gets you there. That's fantastic. Okay. Well, well, that was really great. It definitely was a tool we had never heard before. Um, although there were a couple other um, tools and cool tools that have been nominated for the high-end um, restaurateurs and, and chefs who are kind of exploring um, the edges of what's possible. This sounds like it should be in their toolkit too. So Will, what's the second, uh, what's number two on your list of uh, All right. cool tools? Um, Okay, so um, this is a this is a, uh, a also a, a very I think kind of odd tool. It's called a um, Paint Shaver Pro, and I'm I'm sorry, I'm going to just pick it up really quickly so I can reference it as I talk about it. The reason I bought this is because again, like the tool, like dic is dictated by the task. Um, I'm restoring a 1890s uh, Victorian house, and um, one of the problems you run into in those houses is plaster. So there's a lot of plaster in these old houses. And plaster is a really interesting material, talking about materials again. It's very heavy. It's made of sand and limestone. And in many cases, what people will do is just destroy it. They'll just knock it down off the walls and throw it away. And that's a huge, you know, carbon, you know, it's a huge carbon sink because you have to throw away all the old materials, you get new materials, and you lose a lot of these properties of this plaster, which are sound insulating. They're, you know, it's, it's very low risk of fire, and it's just kind of this beautiful original material. And, and so how do you restore it? And that's where the Paint Shaver Pro comes in. And this is a tool that's made in Rhode Island <laughs> by a small family firm. And what they do is they take a grinder, essentially like a, a carbide-tipped grinder, and they have this carefully machined attachment for it that allows you to hold the grinder at a very precise angle from a surface. And so the original purpose of this was to strip paint from clapboard side houses in New England, or even to strip uh, like gel coats from boats, old boats. And so what this does is it lets you hold this grinder at a set angle and you kind of run it along the side like you're, like you're you're trimming like a hedge or, or, and it takes off about three to five inches in a pass of material. Mm -hmm. And there are these little carbide blades that sit on. So, so you're, you're, so you're holding up this handheld um, 
tool that has a it's plug in and it's got um, as you said it's kind of like a like a grinder angle grinder but instead of having a disc where yeah. the um, grinder would be there is a contraption there is kind of aluminum yeah. a face and there is this recessed triangular uh, rotating set of um, three cutter blades there's a cutter blade going around exactly and, exactly. and they have two handles so you're you're putting this up against the face that you're grinding and instead of it kind of grinding it's cutting with the three routers or three cutters yeah so i went through a lot of uh failures trying to figure out how to restore plaster walls and the first failure was um just paint scraping with my hands and that was slow and there were you know hundreds of years worth of paint on the walls and I needed a way to get like the dust off and the paint chips were going everywhere. And one of the nice things about this is it has a vacuum port. Right. So you can actually attach a dust extractor to it or a vacuum, um, preferably something with a HEPA vac. And you should use this definitely wear a mask, like a, uh, like a, a very safe respirator mask with it um, because you're kicking out a lot of dust and possibly lead paint dust. Um, but what this lets you do is take off all of the paint in one pass and get back to that original surface without disturbing the surface underneath. Right. Okay. So, 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 yeah. So the crucial thing is that you're restoring a plaster as is the wall. So, so you're yeah. just kind of going to keep a plaster wall and restore the surface to make it paintable again, or exactly whatever it is. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about plaster is that, um, it's it's this limestone material and, and it's actually become very trendy or like very hot to use lime wash paint to recreate the original look. But that lime paint is not very compatible going over old acrylics or you know whatever paints existed, you know, have been put on in the last hundred years. So by going back to that original surface, now you can paint the original paint and you get this beautiful matte finish. Um, and it's basically can last forever. Um, mm -hmm. material um you know and if you go to a lot of the like youtube videos about this are, are people in britain or in germany who are like restoring rather than discarding that's kind of an american thing we have to like rip everything off throw everything away put in the latest technology and then 10 15 years it's worn out and we have to do it again and that really doesn't sync with my idea about how right. we can build a sustainable culture so going back to then to to the pro, the paint shaver pro, yeah, shaver pro. It sounds like you can also can you also use this for removing paint? Oh yeah, that was its primary. Right. The 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 weird thing about this recommendation is the company didn't really recommend it for this. I just I tried a bunch of different things, right, right. and and this worked the best. So you know you can strip maybe half a room in a day if you do a full day right, right. um yeah well, but, but but it's uh, it's also a, a paint stripper is what you're saying yeah, exactly well, well yeah. to me that's that's more interesting because i spent us uh my high school summers painting houses which means that you spend three quarters of your time taking the paint off the old houses and i hated it we were doing it by hand yeah. And um, we didn't even have sanders. Well, we had like sandpaper. Yeah. Um, and so this would have just transformed that if we could have just gone along with uh, scraping it off with a power scraper. Yeah. So, um, that sounds fantastic. 
It's is um, yeah, that's the primary use. And in fact, I think a lot of people will buy this tool um, and they will use it as a business and they can get like, you know, they can, they, because they, it just transforms how fast you can take paint off of surface. Right. And um, can you adjust the, the depth at which it's um, shaving? Exactly. It goes from zero millimeters to 2.5 millimeters and right. it's really designed to just scrape. And the other thing that's nice about it is um, it has, Two angles, talking about taking paint off, you know, you have these old clapboard houses and it not only takes off stuff on the long flat surface of a, of a like, let's say a, some siding, but it also has this, this top that's open. So you can also take off the material underneath the corresponding facing. Right. Uh, the yes, overlap, so. the overlap yeah. part. Yep. Wow. So, that is, that's awesome. So, um, you began by saying that there was it was made by a family one. So does that mean that there's really only one, or are there other versions of these rotary paint and scrapers available? And this is the best, or, or how, how does that work? Yeah, these this is definitely a specialty tool, and the the family that made it they charge a premium. It's a very they they charge I think a thousand dollars for it, which okay. is quite expensive unless you're actually thinking about how long it takes to pay somebody to do this work. Exactly right. If you're painters today i mean uh, you around here you can't get a house painted for less than ten thousand dollars exactly so this this can really cut down some of the worst of the time um and, and make the job just more efficient right um there are knockoffs but i haven't used them or i can't really speak to them i think the biggest thing you need to be aware of is the the dust extraction that i have found is a hallmark of a well-designed tool versus a poorly designed tool is how much dust it gets out because the dust is both like an ecological concern. It's a health and safety, you know, uh, a concern. You have to wear protective equipment. And the more dust that is created, the more you have to clean up from your site. So I, I can speak and say this gets about 90 to 95% of the dust, um, which is huge uh, because you're, you're creating a lot. Uh, but, you know, I can't speak to how anything else works or any of the knockoff tools might work. Okay. And so again, this is called the Paint Shaver Pro. Correct. Yeah. And um, they have different amp versions, mm -hmm. I guess, and they probably are heavier as they get up in amps. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I went for the, the kind of heavy duty one because I didn't know I'm using sort of off label and I want yeah. to make sure that I'm going to at least get the the best power, but I think I could have gone with a lower powered one and been okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't, uh, yeah. So it's about a thousand, about a thousand dollars for maybe the low end. $750 for the low end. Yeah. Yeah. Not the, not the cheapest tool. I'll be right. honest. Well, yeah, but, but believe me at any point in my my short career as a painter, I would have paid that. Um, so, um, well, there's two great ones, which we have not ever mentioned before. So tell me a third tool that you really like. All right. Um, the third one is, uh, I, Kevin, I think I'm going to be your maybe your guest of like tools that are not that easy for people to get. <laughs> um, this one is called Abacus and it's, uh, it's, it's finite element analysis software. And maybe I don't want to even tie it to a specific brand. Um, 
you know, it could be any finite uh, element analysis software. And if, as far as I know, I think Fusion 360 by Autodesk now includes a few uh, finite element analysis packages, part of its-, its Okay, stuff. so let's, let's start with finite element analysis and why our listeners would even want that and what, the, what is that? Um, okay, so sometimes you want to understand how, um, how an object might behave under different physical conditions. You're talking about actually an actual physical object. Yeah, like a physical object. I'm gonna bring out my example here. So I have a, something to reference. So um, this is a shoe I worked in. So briefly I was, um, I, I would say like a, 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 essentially a lab supervisor or maybe a, a project manager or a, a product manager for MIT um, in the media lab. And one of the you know customers we were working with or, or people we were collaborating was Puma. And we worked on a shoe for Puma that was really unique in that it had these holes that went all the way through it. Again, the tool is determined by what your outcome is. Right, right. So you're holding up a sneaker and yep. on the side of the sole of the sneaker are these holes. It's kind of very hard to describe. It's like kind of crinolated, uh, holy, uh, looks kind of, mm, I can't even describe it. <laughs> so the, the term you're looking for is, a, is an auxetic pattern. Um, auxetic patterns are a class of patterns. I'm sorry, I'm a materials person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get into the details here. Are a class of pattern that um, that deform in really interesting ways. Essentially, they self-reinforce as they get compressed. And why would you want to put this in a shoe? Because the shoe undergoes a lot of different forces in its life. Sometimes a person is walking around, and particularly when they're in the shoe store, they want the shoe to feel nice and bouncy. And that's a feeling that we all love when we put on a fresh pair of shoes and the shoe is just this fresh thing and it feels like, oh, I'm walking on clouds. But when we're running or we're doing something, you know, really hard work in a shoe, standing on it for a long time a day, we can put higher pressure on our shoe. And in that case, you need it to behave differently. You want it to be actually firmer and, and, and harder so that it can withstand that higher force and still absorb the cushion of the blow. So... Where does the finite element analysis software come in? You have a really complicated pattern. And every time you make a mold or try to test this pattern with the actual shoe material, it costs a lot of money because you have to 3D print this metal mold. It's extremely expensive to do. And you're not able to validate it or test a different version. And so you really need to see, is this gonna work or not before we go down the road and like build this whole thing? And you find this in engineering generally. So that's where the finite element analysis software comes in. Um, and you can either feed a finite element analysis software, a full 3D model, like an STL model, or you can even feed it a two-dimensional drawing and you can run your simulation in two dimensions. And that's actually really great for shoes because you just take a slice down the middle of the shoe and then you put you you imagine the force that a runner would have when they're they're pressing so you might pick you know the weight of a 250 pound runner somebody really heavy and take their pressure and put the maximum pressure they would have on that shoe and see how the pattern deforms and that allowed us to really quickly iterate so instead of waiting a month to 3d print a mold to take the mold to the you know to the tester to inject it with the, the, the foam, to see what the foam is doing. 
we can get a turnaround and a validation in a day. Okay. So and anybody who might be a serious engineer here is probably familiar with this, but I think it's really interesting for general makers to think about how do we simulate or validate something without having to go all the way to like find the like final thing. Okay, so let's say I'm a maker and I have a 3D printer and I have a file for something that maybe is gonna try and barrel load and I'm really concerned about it. I could still make some prototypes, but I want to kind of have further confirmation or maybe explore the possible ways to print it. So I would use this software mm -hmm. to simulate the, the pressures and stresses on the 3D model that I have. Exactly. Or, or you might have a, you know, an object that takes a lot to make the final object. Like you need to do a casting or you need to do, you know, some sort of like really the, a CNC machining as an example, where it's a lot of setup and run runtime to figure out like, is this even going to work or not at the precision I need it? These allow you to separate, you know, to add precise loads, to add precise forces and to really see how things behave um, with the material properties. Like you could use steel or you could use foam. Um, and most finite element analysis software kind of lets you even just add in general characteristics of materials and then it can simulate that material. Okay, so I am now in the market for finite element analysis software. Um, the one that you're recommending, um, Abacus, is it one of many? Is it uh, the best? Yeah. And um, um, why is it better than others? I think it's I think it's just kind of the oldest. And at the time that I was using it, it was um, what was available. So MIT through their licensing, you know, gets access. The students get access to a lot of software, and it's kind of like everybody wants a college student who might be an engineer one day to use their yeah. software because then that's what they get used to and they ask for at work. So through, you know, Abacus is owned by the makers of uh, Dassault, which, which also makes, you know, uh, CAD software. Um, but I, I think, you know, your big, your big competitor is Autodesk and they, they offer, you know, sort of this freemium or like lower cost um, or at least, you know, there's a way to test out um, Fusion 360. And Fusion 360 is kind of like trying to become the all-in-one CAM software. So why would you use uh, Abacus? Um, I think it's kind of this old school like thing. I think Abacus goes back to the 80s in terms of its, its heritage. And it's sort of this like um, traditional version. And then Fusion 360 is kind of newer. What Abacus lets you do is it sort of lets you you set every parameter. Um, like you can create your own materials. You can code it. It has a like you know a, 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 like a user interface that you can like click on buttons, but it also like takes scripts and so forth. Fusion three hundred and sixty, I think, is newer and it is less kind of mature. You know, maybe a little bit more user friendly out of the gate, and maybe maybe a little bit more documentation. So. If you could, if you're a student at a college and they have Abacus, use that one for free. But if you're somebody as a maker who wants to just understand and explore finite element analysis, I would get like whatever you can get that's part of a free package, like um, like a Fusion 360. Right. Okay. That's really great. So I didn't know about that. That's really good to know. I do 3D print, so that's even more useful to to hear about. Yeah. Um, and I, I would I would also just say that like- Is Abacus, sorry, is Abacus free? Uh, no, definitely not. It's, okay. it's, 
It's a, again, one of those, if you have to ask, it's too much, which is why I would steer. Well, we have to ask. Uh, (laughs) So I I mean, it's a per seat, you know, engineering tool. So uh, several thousand per year is probably the cost. And it, it depends on the size of your institution and the negotiation that your business development team does. So again, I'm choosing these tools maybe more on the like, well, this is like a crazy thing I may never have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing is that finite element analysis has become, you know, uh, uh, through because it's used in engineering now, maybe it's becoming a little bit more available through software like Fusion 360. And, you know, I guess the last thing I'd say is, the time to really bring in some software like this is when you're doing a really, you know, something that it's not practical to test in real life um, because the cost is really high or the forces are really large. That's like really when you bring this out is to sort of start to iterate and test on something that is just impractical to test, you know, to test repeatedly or it's cost prohibitive. Right, right. Okay. All righty. Well, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Will, your um, last choice the fourth choice yeah so um this is actually goes back to my my history and i'm, I'm going to talk through a process again uh because that seems to be my theme here <laughs> but it, it, I, th- I hope it illustrates kind of the you know what you could do with the tool a little bit better or why i might choose it and my fourth one is the um i will say the form 3 3d printer although primarily i have used the form 2 3d printer so as I was going from an artist into a product designer, um, I started working on human interfaces with different kinds of computers, and one was 3D printers. So I joined a little startup in Cambridge, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, called Formlabs. And Formlabs makes a resin-based 3D printer. Um, and as they started, they were really targeting the maker group, the maker space group. But over time, as they found who, who is really using this printer, they've moved more to dentists, you know, engineers, doctors. So it's a, it's a pricey printer at this point. Although the form two on an eBay, you can get a perfectly working one for less than a thousand bucks. Yeah. So let me just pause there and say, there are basically two kinds of 3d printers. There's the original kind that used a filament that would feed into it and it would remelt the filament and layer by layer. Uh, and as it cooled, it would make a solid object. And then the resin ones, kind of a little different one. They're more complicated, a little bit messier, and therefore more expensive. Whereas they um, have a liquid that they start with, a resin, and they use ultraviolet light to harden it. And it goes in the reverse where it, it pulls up the finished object from the liquid as it adds on layers beneath it. Um, and generally, it's considered that the surface of the resin printed ones are smoother, a little bit more higher resolution. And so they're preferable for a higher quality 3D print. Mm-hmm. Is that basically about right? Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, one of the reasons you might go with a resin based 3D printer is because the parts are, are fully solid. Um, and when is that really good? When you, it's good when you want something that is, you know, maybe moldable or castable because you don't have little holes or ridges on it that can maybe catch in your mold or that will leave a surface finish that doesn't look as nice. And, and so let's talk about what I did with this 3D printer. 
Um, well, I did a lot because I, I worked for the company and you get 3D printing for free when you work for a 3D printing company. Um, so I made all kinds of fun objects, but I got really into a project making um, planters. And for a while I was making 3D printed planters that were plastic and I was just iterating. And, and all of this came about because I wanted to make a succulent planter that didn't kill my succulents. I was really terrible at growing succulents. And over time, I realized I needed a kind of planter that would, that would allow you to water the plant from underneath. It's called a sub-irrigation planter. And so um, I designed this planter myself and 3D printed a mold okay. for a master. I'm yeah. going to pause you for a second. You just held up um, a little tiny two-part planter, one um section layers on top of the other and the one on top has a little kind of funnel bottom um so that presumably is where the soil is and allows the water to kind of seep up from below exactly but so, it looks very handsome it's, it's it's a very it's kind of rectangular and um yeah. sharp so um this is a little there's a i actually have one right here that has a cactus in it and the cactus actually grows a set of roots down through um, the bottom of the planter into the little reservoir for water. And so I never get too much water on the plant and it never rots or gets too wet. Um, and so it can take like kind of a sip of water from beneath. And that, you know, allows me to grow my succulents and not have problems with uh, them, them, them rotting or, or being unhealthy. So um, the process. I started off by um, thinking about how I would make these ceramic planters that are really unusual shape um, because they have to have, you know, there's, there's sort of a shape that people don't really make commonly, sort of this rectangular shape. Um, and so the way you, you create unusual shapes in ceramics repeatedly is you create a, a plaster mold. And so the plaster mold is actually a, a two-part mold, and I'm holding it up to the camera right now. And it it allows it has an open end, and you can pour clay into that end, and you let it sit for a while. And the plaster mold sucks the water out of the clay and leaves this sort of skin behind. And so then you dump out the wet clay, and then that dries over time. And you can take the mold apart, and then you have your your clay in the middle of the mold. And the, the beauty of this process is you can make really unusual forms, like anything that you've seen that's like a molded rabbit or like a pitcher, those are commonly made by this kind of casting process. Um, and so how did the 3D printing come into it? To make these plaster molds, I created a 3D printed original mold, uh, version. So you're holding and, up in one hand, the half of the plaster mold, and then in the other hand, you have a resin printed version of it. Yep. Of the opposite side, I think it looks like, or maybe. Exactly. And so, um, so yeah, so you start with the printed version. Great. Exactly. So you take a printed version and you cast it in a, a silicone mold. Um, and then you can use that silicone mold to make your uh, plaster molds. And if you have a, uh, if you're really clever about it, you can kind of use one mold to make two parts. So this right. is actually the same part, and it's just as it as it's rotated, it fits together perfectly, and there are keys built into it so that the 
the two ends mate perfectly and they're very watertight. And so the ceramic yeah. can go in and, and that kind of reduces the number of molds you need to make. But part of this is, you know, you use the 3D printer to test the original design right. and validate that, making sure you feel good about that. And then you use the printer to validate and to test your 3D printed uh, mold. So, you know, it's easy to print two versions of it and see, hey, do these fit together well or do they not fit together well? And if they don't, then I need to kind of fix something or adjust right. my spacing. Right. So, so let's get back then to the, to the printer, which mm -hmm. is what you are recommending. I know you may be biased because you used to work for the company, but um, would you say that if you were going to buy a 3D resin printer today, that this is the one that you would recommend? You know, I, I think there's this sort of weird thing in tools where you, you, you can get locked into systems. It kind of depends on how much of a tink if, if you're on the tinkerer spectrum or the like, I got to get things done spectrum. And if this, you're on Okay. So, so what's, what size is this one good for? This is on the get things done spectrum for sure. Okay. Um, you know, there are customer service plans. There's like upselling, there's, um, you know, like uh, ways to automate the system. Like you can strap on this thing that like actually takes the part off the printer and like you lets you print multiple things when you're, when you're, you know, you're, you're away for a while. Yeah. Um, so this is definitely on the, like, I need to get some, a lot of 3d printing done and I don't want to mess around with the figuring out the software, but I think the, the, you know, the alternatives are, 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 you know, I just have less experience with, so I can't talk, speak to you, yeah, yeah. but if okay. I, and even, even as a maker, when I'm tinkering around, I kind of want to know something's going to work the first right, time. Right. So, so um, it looks like um, if you buy a, a reconditioned one, you can get that for around $2,000. Hmm. I'm not sure what the new ones cost, but there are also, by the way, fourth resin 3D printers versus the filament ones. There are additional steps and equipment needed. Like you have to rinse it. You have to cure it with a light. So there's, there's, hmm. It, it is a little bit more of a, an expensive proposition if you're going to get into it. So it's not just the printer itself. Yeah, I, I would um actually, well, that, that's the funny part is the, the cleaning and the washing. That's maybe the part where I think you can, you can find some value. Um, washing really is like an, you know, a little bit of isopropyl alcohol or rubbing alcohol in a bucket. Um, and in terms of curing, I would just put these in my windowsill. And let them once they were nice and clean i would let them sit in the sun for a little while the sun provides a lot of uv rays and uh, that really hardened them up without you know causing any you know because they're pretty solid pieces it, it wasn't something i was worried about if you had a very thin or delicate piece you might not want to leave it in the sun for too long because um it kind of will get uh how do i describe it it'll become uh brittle over time you know as the sun really cures and makes that plastic very hard it's easy to like snap off little pieces. So, you know, just, just kind of like anything is like a bit of a process or experimentation. Yeah. But anyway, so this is the form labs three that you are suggesting. Is that right? The form three, 3d printer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do know friends who have that version for, uh, as, even as a first three resin printer. So um, it would certainly be a, a candidate if you're looking at one. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, Will, we have a few minutes left. Um, why don't you, uh, do you have a project that you're working on or a cause that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I'll be honest, uh, as a, a dad of a two-year-old um, <laughs> and uh, somebody who took on a, a, a massive home renovation, um, right now I got no extra time. Uh, <laughs> and also, you know, working on this future of, of uh, you know, voice AI conversational uh-huh. interfaces. Um, but I live in the Bay Area, and one thing I've noticed is that it's just really hard to connect with people. Um, you know, unless you're talking to people through work, it's just, and maybe this is a new dad thing as well. So I guess I would say if people want to reach out through my Instagram page or uh, my LinkedIn page, um, I, I'd love to just chat about making stuff, um, you know, meet up for coffee, or, um, you know, if you've got kids like needed a playground, <laughs> uh, talk about uh, talk about making things. Um, or even just recommendations for a uh, good, good maker meetup groups, because that's been a little, little tricky to find. Um, yeah. So I'll just call out my, my Instagram uh, profile uh, and people can reach me through that. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, since you are the bearer, you might've heard that they are going to resurrect the maker fair um, this month. Oh my God. I'm so excited. Yes. I've yes. Very, I've been very tuned out. Um, yeah. Yeah. That- yeah. So, so that is happening. Well, actually this month, I think it's, I think it's October. Um, check it out. It's going to be on, I think, Yerba Buena um, I, Island. I, I don't remember. But um, in the in the Bay Area, in the East Bay, um, there's going to be a Maker Fair for two different weekends. Um, and uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday for both weekends. So plenty of time to go visit. And um, you can meet your tribe there. What an enchanted place. I have, I have the fondest me- memory of um, Maker Fair 2015. It was just the the epitome of 3D printing. And there was there was a company that had a robotic pour over station. They were making pour over coffees. I uh, yeah. what a what a magical experience. Can't can't recommend that enough. Yeah. Um I, I we'll see if they're able to resurrect the, the magic of old. Um, <laughs> but hopefully they, they they can. And again, for listeners in the Bay Area, you should definitely seek it out. Um I like like Will in the past, they have been incredible in terms of things to see uh things to do uh stuff that kids love um uh and whole new ways of doing things and then just the whole maker spirit of people who are really passionate about doing things themselves and so um highly recommend that outstanding well thanks yeah. for sharing that. so will i'm um really delighted you, you you kind of took us on a little different path which is really welcomed and um, I love the um, your interest in material science, which is um, something that um, as you make things, you become more and more interested in because you realize that these things have properties and the better you understand the properties and the possibilities, the more fun you can have. So thank you for taking time. Um, and we'll have your Instagram or others in the show notes if you provide that to us. So thank you. Um, this was a delight and I, I have enjoyed um, your your voice, your guests, and your recommendations for years. So thank you for, for reaching out and including uh, more people. I'm, I'm really delighted. Best of luck on your AI endeavor and, and, and your art as well. I can see behind you, there's a little bit of some artifacts. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's always a joy to see those. This year, our Cool Tools blog will be 20 years old. 
which means we've been posting something new every day for 20 years. It's only possible because of the very engaged and knowledgeable readers and listeners like yourself. You've kept this place going, and we are very grateful for you. With this idea of 20 years in mind, um, we decided to try an experiment this year, and I'm inviting our guests and listeners to join me on our Cool Tool Show and Tell, which is the program that you're listening to right now. So if you feel you'd make a good guest on this podcast and have four uncommon tools that you'd like to share with us, um, please sign up on our form on the website and we'll see about inviting you. You must be comfortable taking all, talking on a video and um, you need to have some tools that you can show. Um, we record on, as you know, on Zoom. We do a YouTube version, a visual video version of it, as well as an audible version. Fill out the form if you're interested and um, list your four, four cool tools and we'll see if there's a good fit. The applications aren't guaranteed in any way. Um, and we're looking at tools that are new to us and appropriate tools and um, whether the times will work for you. So um, we're really interested in hearing from people all over the world, not just in the U.S., although the tools have to be available online, easily available online. And um, if you are a longtime listener, you kind of know what the definition of our tools are. They're very broad. They can be anything that's handy, from something in the kitchen to something you use to travel to a workshop to something professional that we may not know about. We're really interested in things that we don't know anything about. So um, this is an open invitation. We'll give it a try. If you think you make a good guess for this podcast, um, fill out the form. There'll be a link somewhere on our website. Um, and we look forward to, to chatting with you. Thank you.